Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Help us to consume your word this morning and be rejuvenated in the grace and mercy that is found in Christ and strengthened for the battle both within the church and outside of the church. Bless our time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In my younger days, these were the books we were reading that were very popular. The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom, The Christian Mind by Harry Blamars, Recovering the Christian Mind, Meeting the Challenges of Secularism by Harry Blamire, and Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in an Age of Show Business. In the 70s, in the 80s, it was all about the Christian mind, and there was a great worry going on that Christians had become simply experiential and had given up deep thinking about God and about his word. The books today are flying off the shelves, and uh, they're not the same sorts of titles. They're titles that show us that we did not heed the earlier books. I'm trying to find where they are. Here, they, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> what every Christian needs to know about social justice. Jeffrey Johnson. Christian, Christianity and wokeness. How the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and how to stop it. Owen Strachan. Albert Moeller, The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. Vadi Bauckham, Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement, and the Evangelicals' Looming Catastrophe. Scott Allen, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. An Urgent Appeal to fellow Christians in a time of social crisis. Another book by uh, Scott Allen. A Toxic New Religion. Understanding the postmodern neo-Marxist faith that seeks to destroy the Judeo-Christian culture in the West. One more. Critical race theory, actually two more. Critical race theory, an introduction from a biblical and a historical standpoint. And this one by a man named Christian Smith, it's a, it's a bit on the other side that I would take, but here's what the title is. Divided by faith, evangelical religion and the problem of race in America. These titles tell you that there's trouble. And uh, it wouldn't surprise us that there's trouble, particularly if the trouble, trouble stayed in the culture, but the trouble is making its way into the church. And it's not just making its way into the church that is, you might say, less educated. There are high-powered pastors and teachers at seminaries, at conservative seminaries, who are buying into social justice. Well, yeah, of course, social justice sounds like a great term. After all, who doesn't want justice? And social just means, you know, the whole society should have justice. But that's 
not exactly what they mean by the term. Now, I'm going to define some of those terms, and we're going to move on there from, but I want to go back and just ask you a couple of questions. Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. If you haven't read it, read it. And substitute for television, smart devices. Because we're doing what people did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Wherever you go, whatever spare time you have, your eye is on your phone. You're playing games. As one said, I gotta relax sometime. You're relaxing. God made six days for work and the seventh day for rest. Truly, all of us need relaxation. But relaxation to us now has become amusement. If we're not amused, we're not relaxed. If we're not having fun, we're not relaxed. When is the last time that you just stretched out on the couch and said to yourself, you know, I'm just going to meditate on God's word? Or is it more like, you know, you sit down and your mind just vegetates. You go wherever you want to with your mind. Are you a kind of disciplined person who likes to read, to hear, and to meditate on God's word? Now, of course, you can't do it all the time. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm afraid we're more like Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it is suggested in the fact that the church is in a downfall towards the extremes of our culture, and uh, the gospel is being hijacked by something that most people don't understand, some people understand, and most people who may be in the movement may not understand the depth of the movement. Nevertheless, it is happening. As one writer put it, you can hear the hiss of the serpent. You're oppressed. God is oppressing you. You need freedom. Remember, <clears throat> Psalm 1 talks about, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like the tree, firmly planted by rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. I have more insight than all my teachers, for, my, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Now, of course, there's a thing called reading, and you can read, and uh, you can be in Timbuktu in your mind, you read it all and you don't remember a thing. That can happen to you. Or you can listen, you can hear, and your mind may be so far away that you hear the words coming, but they really don't mean that much because you're not really tuned in. Meditation is even harder because you're not listening to something and your eyes aren't focused on something. Instead, you're thinking about something that has been stored up in your life. Thy word have I stored up in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And the psalmist said, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, if you know anything about humanness, you know that we do what we like best. We do what we think is best for us. And if we don't have that kind of heart that yet delights in the law of the Lord, that delights in God's word, then it is just that kind of heart that we should be seeking to receive from the Lord. We should be asking him for it. We should be praying about it. So uh, we're going to look for a couple of weeks at 
the social justice movement. And uh, it gained prominence. It's been coming. It's been coming for a long time. It's really been coming in uh, America from about 1922. It uh, really began to rear its ugly head in 1971 and then again in 1989. And if your kids go to public school or go to college, a secular college, or even many Christian colleges, what they are going to be taught is what is called social justice. Social justice is not, as the one book title is, not biblical justice. Social justice is built off of a, uh, a theory called critical theory. And in the United States right now, this theory is called critical race theory. You can have critical gender theory. You can have critical economic theory. You can have critical race theory. You can have, you know, critical feminism theory. You can have any of those. But they're all based off this one idea of critical theory. Critical theory really came to fruition through Karl Marx. It is communist at heart. Critical theory in Marxism was that Okay, you have over here the haves, and you have over here the haves-nots, and this just isn't right. And so what we need to do is we need to take what the haves have, put it over here what the haves do not have, and just mix it all up and redistribute it all around so that there is total equity. Now, Marx was not just talking about money and stuff. Marx realized that this has to be a worldwide project and it has to encompass everything, including the mind. And so Marx's goal, the Marxist goal, was to take families and dissolve them. The Marxist goal was to take parents away from educating their own children and put all the children together with the state educating them so that the state could teach them that there is no God, there is no ethic other than a socially derived ethic. Not an ethic where you can say, thou shalt not. No, an ethic that serves the society at large. So it's this broad open where we all share everything equally we can have any sexual moray that we want, just so long as we don't hurt anybody. And we can have children, but we're not really going to have marriage, and the state is going to take our children, and the state is going to educate them. When you use the word social justice, lots of people out there are using it, and they don't mean this. They don't know it. But that's not what the the uh, movement makers are thinking. So what I'm about to tell you in Black Lives Matters, what I'm gonna tell you about critical theory, Black Life Matters holds to it and promotes it. Black Lives Matters is not just about black people. Of course black lives matter. Of course there should be justice. But Black Lives Matter is broader. It encompasses the LGBTQ, it wants to subvert Christianity. It wants to get rid of all morals. And it wants reparations. It wants to redistribute wealth. It is neo-Marxism, hence the title. Postmodern and neo-Marxist faith. And of course, a lot of people out there who are pushing this, they're not Christians. But because of what's happened in our country and the media presentation of it, and certainly there's truth in it, because of the injustice that we've seen, people are very concerned. And in being concerned, they have jumped on the Black Lives Matters movement, and they have jumped on, more broadly, the whole idea of social justice. Try to say that three times fast.
So critical theory then is this neo-Marxist, let's redistribute everything. So in, in Marxism, justice is equity, not biblical equity, but equality, where we're all the same. So when we're talking about social justice, when you hear those two words, we're talking about a system that is, wants to make everybody equal. Well, kind of equal, but wants to make sure everybody has the same amount of money and wants to make sure that the people who have committed crimes, they didn't commit it against, uh, they didn't commit it against a higher law. They committed crimes because they weren't taught well, they didn't have enough money. And so we need to view it as a sickness and retrain them, re-educate them, bring them into the mix and the mash of everyone else. That is what critical theory is. Let's see if I can find my scripture I want to read. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which Yahweh your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment, with justice. You shall not distort justice. You shall not, you shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. Notice the emphasis on justice. Now, what is that in Deuteronomy? First of all, it's the Ten Commandments. This is what you shall do. This is what you shall not do. And then in chapters 12 through 26, there's just this whole litany of laws that have to do about with personal property, with paying your employees, all kinds of, just about justice. It's not about mixing everybody together to make everything equal. It's about justice. So critical theory believes in distributive justice. Christianity holds to retributive justice. In other words, if you break the law, the judge standing over here is not going to judge with partiality. The judge is going to judge by justice, by what the law says. Because when you read the law of God, it not only tells the law, it tells the punishment that goes with violation of the law. You're going to judge justly. The United States is built on that. That's what our justice system is. Now, of course, it's been and has been being perverted for many years. And it's true that uh, lots of people who are guilty because they have enough money get off. All of that's true. But that's not what social justice is. Social justice really wants to take the laws and throw them out and say, okay, you can be whatever you want because after all, What's right and wrong really just depends on what a society decides is right and wrong. So with critical theory, then, you have uh, lots of terminology. You have the terminology of white privilege. Now, here we're talking about black and white in the United States. You can be talking about colored people or white people, but if you went to another country, the groups would be different. 
So what you have in the United States, according to social justice, is you have white people who have privilege. And they have privilege because of the way they've grown up, because of the way the laws were made in our land. And we have systemic injustice because of the kind of laws we have. They're not suited towards certain groups of people. And so all white people are guilty. It's called white privilege. White privilege means you're guilty. And if we put it in terms of what's been going on in our country, you're a racist. You can't help it. You may not intend to be a racist. You may not think racially like that. But because of your privilege, you are automatically racist. And if you deny it, then you get another term put on you. It's called white fragility. You're so fragile, your emotions are ruined if people contradict you. You just don't know the truth yet. And that's where the term woke came from, wokeness. In other words, oh, I just woke up. I'm a racist. And we have books written by pastors who are repenting and crying daily over their sin of wokeness. It's not that they feel prejudice. It's not that they feel like they're a racist. But they realize the whole system in the United States is rigged towards white people. That's what wokeness is. Wokeness is about, just like with Karl Marx, it's about the people on top oppressing the people down lower. So you have white privilege oppressing everyone else. Or uh, when you push this out, you discover, oh yeah, there's all kinds of oppression. So, you know, if you're a white male and you are a company leader, you are oppressing the people in your company. If you're married, you're oppressing your wife. If you have children, you're oppressing your children. If you're an elder in the church, you're oppressing the church. This is from the oppressed side called intersectionality, if you've seen the term. So that, well, let's just say you're a uh, black lady who's gay, has a handicapped, and that means you're oppressed because you're black, it means you're oppressed because you're a lady, and it means you're oppressed because you're gay, and it means you're oppressed because you're handicapped. And social justice is to move all that oppression out. How do you do that? Well, you mix everyone up, you give everybody the same stuff, and you let everybody be what they want to be. That's social justice. Now, it's invading the evangelical church. I'm sure it's not quite that severe in the evangelical church. They wouldn't quite say it like that, but this is the theory they're buying into, this kind of social justice. Now, uh, there are three terms we want to talk about, and then we're going to turn to Romans again. Three terms, ontology, epistemology, and ethics. Ontology comes from the Greek word that means to be. It's essence. What, how do you think being is? So ontology comes in two forms. It comes in theism and it comes in materialism. If you don't want God, you're a materialist. And you say, okay, things just were. There was just a big bang and it all happened, but there's no God. But ontologically, we would say, no, there is a God. And the Bible's quite clear. All you have to do is look at creation, and you can see that. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we'll just look down at verse 18 to begin with. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it 
evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, not all of them, but some of his attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been created, by, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So ontologically, you take a choice. There's either God or there's no God. If you're a no-godder person, you are a materialist. Ontology. We believe that God is. Okay, so now if there is a God, is God knowable? Can you know God? Well, right here in Romans, it says, well, yeah, you can know certain things about God. You can see his power. You can see that he's divine. You can understand some of his attributes. You can know something about God. An atheist says, okay, well, there might be a God, but you can't know God. He doesn't communicate. So, ontology. It's a category of philosophy. The second word is epistemology. How do we know what we know? If there's a God, how do we know him? How do we know truth and error? Well, epistemology comes in two forms. One is called revelation, and the other is called relativism. You can't know. Revelation is what we believe. We can look in all kinds of scriptures, and God is saying, okay, I'm making myself known to you. That's what Christianity believes. We can know God. Why? Because we're made in his image, and God's attribute is an attribute of language. He talks, and he communicates with us. We may not hear him audibly, but he's given us a book so that we can read it. So we know by revelation. People over here who don't believe in God, I, I use the wrong term, it's not relativism, it's empiricism. They believe you know by, well, what people would call science, by experimentation. How do you know that stove's hot? You touch it once and you know, you learned your lesson. It's by experience, so you either have revelation, or experience, oh, well, of course we learn a lot by experience. But when it comes to metaphysical questions, you can't touch them. You can't put your hand on the hot stove and it burns your fingers so you know you're, oh, yeah, that's hot. We learn them by revelation. So we have ontology, being. We have epistemology, how do you know? And then finally, we have ethics. How do you know right from wrong? Well, we just read it in Deuteronomy. God says, here's my law. This is what's right, this is what's wrong. You do this, you'll be blessed. You do this, you will be punished. Judges, make sure you punish according to the law without partiality. Over here, people who don't think there's a God they, it's not that they think everything's okay, but they think it's relative. So that comes out of Marxism. That is, a society to get along and flourish, they will determine what's right and wrong. It's, it's relative. Of course, that's not what the Bible says. We believe there's one God existing in three persons. He is, he was, he always will be. We believe this God made this universe to bring glory to himself. And the glory comes to him when we can look at it, see him, glorify him, and honor him. We see what a great God he is. We believe that this God who communicates with us communicates with us his truth so that we do know right from wrong. 
Social justice does not believe any of that. Social justice is what is being taught in public schools and most poignantly at colleges. Some Christian college, but certainly all secular colleges. And if your kids go there, they're going to be steeped in it. Some of it will be overt. Some of it will be very subtle. And uh, I have noticed over the last 10 years of how uh, young people are grabbing on to a kind of a relativistic ethic. They may still say, well, yeah, there's a God. It's like millennials who have passed through this church, and I talk to them, I say, well, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, do you go to church? Oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't go to church. Well, do you think that's right? Oh, yeah, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And then you discover, oh, well, they believe in, uh, they believe it's okay to be gay. I mean, that's not what I would do, but uh, after all, God's a nice God. He wouldn't do anything about it. Well, it's arising into what social justice is. Now, let me say uh, quickly, Black lives do matter, but if you say all lives matter, social justice is upset with you. You are a racist. Why? Because you haven't suffered like we have, and so you can't talk. Shut your mouth is what they write in the book. Shut your mouth. You can't talk. You don't know our experience, and you're a racist, and you can't change it, so just shut your mouth. We'll take care of things. Of course, every life matters. Because after all, every life in this room and every life that's ever been on this globe all came from one place made in the image of God. And all life has come from Adam and Eve. Do you know what that means? That means there is no race. Everybody has the same roots. Adam and Eve. Now, in the course of time and the way God has done things, you can segment out certain people, groups. That's what the word nation in the New Testament means, people, groups. And you can see that these people, groups, for example, if you make your way down to Jacob with his 12 sons, you have 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes all have certain characteristics. They grow in a certain way. So it's happened with the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. God divides things out, the nations grow out, and yes, people take on certain characteristics. How much pigment is in their skin, for example. But we all have the same father, and we all have the same mother, Adam and Eve. So there really is no such thing as race. So within the social justice movement, what they are doing is not helping us deal with uh, judicial problems, justice problems. They're helping divide us more and more. You guys sit over here, you keep quiet. We'll sit over here. We'll do everything that we know needs to be done. Turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him, is the word. It's not honor. The word is glorify him as God. Or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish minds were darkened. Now, the more I've thought about this, we're all encompassed in here. But this goes back to Adam. So you have Adam and Eve. And on day six, they've been created. And Adam has had God talk to him, tell him what to do. God has taken him out and 
brought all the animals before him, so he names them and he realizes, well, they come in pairs and there's not one for me. He puts Adam to sleep and takes a piece of flesh out of him, sews him back up and fashions that piece of flesh into a woman. And when she comes, he looks at her and he says, what? Shazam! I mean, you have to say it. This is the first. Everything from here is down. She was the most beautiful woman that will ever be. They had each other. And they were both in the garden, trees all around with the tree of life in the middle that they're invited to eat from. All that sensual tension. And what do they do? They throw it away. They said, somehow, it's, it's a mystery. How could it possibly happen? They said, look, this God's given us all of this stuff, and he's given us each other, and he's put us in charge of all of these animals. But let's put ourselves under the rule of the beast. So, this God who is, he's eternal. He can speak and it happens. That's how they came to be. They didn't glorify him. They didn't give him the weight, the significance, the majesty that belongs to him. And they were unthankful. It's the word Eucharist. They were not thankful. All these trees, all these animals, a husband and wife, life on easy street. Well, easy garden. And that wasn't good enough for them. They said, we'll take the beast. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him. The word glorify means to give weight. To glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. The word fool here in the Greek is morons. They became morons. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an animal in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's what they did. Now, in Romans, and we've talked about this, you may not remember, you have bookends. And in this chapter, which is going to blossom out into man's utter despicability, all of his sin, it's crucial that one realize, I'm a sinner, and I should be judged. That's what Romans is going to blossom out into in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then in the middle of 3, we're going to discover God's redemption and His grace and His forgiveness and the shed blood of Christ. All cast in images of the Old Testament and what happened at the temple. And then when you move on from there, you're going to move into how God has justified them declared them righteous, and transformed them. And we've been looking at chapter 8, where it moves into bringing Adam and Eve, us, back to what we were created for. And then you end, end up with 9, 10, 11, which is part of the scenario, but for our sakes, we don't need it this morning. And then you get to chapter 12, which enters into the conclusions. Therefore, because of the mercies of God, let's do this.
Turn to chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, that takes up the first 11 chapters to show what kind of position man was in. Adam and Eve and all the rest of us, under judgment, under wrath, because this weighty God, Adam said, mm, no, I think I'll take a beast instead. And God comes in love and kindness and sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins in his blood through faith. And you get the grand statement at the beginning of chapter 8. Well, let's start with chapter 5. Having been justified, we have peace. The God that was angry with us is now at peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained this introduction into this grace in which we stand. And then you get to chapter 8. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Again, because he sent his son to be the sin offering for us. And so you move from wrath and despicability through the magnificent grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you come down to this conclusion in chapter 12. Okay, because of these mercies. All the mercies that first list out are sin. You want to know the sin? You can look at it in chapter 1, in verses 20, 24 through 28. First, it comes with sexual lasciviousness. Second, it comes with homosexuality. And then thirdly, it comes with a depraved mind and all the behavior that comes from a mind that is disobedient to parents, untrustworthy, unloving, ungrateful. You just list them out. And look what God's done. And so that's what the word mercy is here. Because of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I'm reading the New American Standard. Some of yours are going to have a different translation. There are two words in the Greek. This is your logical service. In chapter 1, their, their speculations were futile. The word there is the same. Well, it's not exact. It has the same root. The way they thought, the way they reasoned became futile. Now God's done his gracious work, and at the other end, okay, so... Whereas before, you know, you threw God over, you chose the beast instead, all these particular sins became your sins, but look what God has done, and now here you are at the end, and God can say to you now, okay, because of these mercies, do this. This is your reasonable service. Remember? Adam was put in the garden, and Adam was told, serve the garden and guard it. Now we're on the other side of the cross and God says, okay, now I've changed you by my grace. Now this is your service. And I fixed up your mind. Your speculations, your thinking became illogical, unreasonable. You chose a beast over me. I've changed you. Now this is what you do. You've been transformed. Now, this is what you do. You hand over your body. Look at it again, chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You have living, holy 
and acceptable. There's no punctuation in the Greek. One has to decide, okay, now how am I going to put all these together? And different translations put them together by their punctuation than other translations. I want you to set aside the punctuation for a minute and just realize there are three adjectives, a sacrifice. It's living, it's holy, acceptable. It's picking up tempo language. You come in with your sacrifice, say an ascension offering. And you hand that sacrifice, it's alive. And that sacrifice is going to die instead of you. Now in the New Testament, you come in with your Jesus Christ. And you hand him over. And he's going to die instead of you. You hand over a living sacrifice. Now in Romans, he says, no, now you're a living sacrifice. So there is a certain implication. It's not physical death. It's not a death of punishment because that's been done. Instead, you're a living sacrifice. That is, you take up your cross and you follow Christ. In other words, over here, when Adam stepped out of line, didn't give God the glory that was due him, and chose a beast over God, he became unreasonable. We've been transformed, and over here now, we're reasonable again. Ah. So God does know best. I think I'll follow God, a living sacrifice. Holy. When it comes to the temple, there are zones of holiness. You can only go to certain places. But you bring this animal, and you say, okay, I hand this over to God. Now this animal is my substitute. It's me, and I'm giving myself fully to God. Holy stuff is God's stuff. I say, okay, God, I'm living, and I'm, I'm dedicated fully to you. I hand myself over to you. Then, finally, acceptable. Well, of course, we're acceptable in Christ, but it's picking up temple language. What happens if you bring your, your, your uh, sacrifice to the doorway of the tabernacle and that sacrifice is blind? What's going to happen? No, it's not going to be accepted. What happens if it's lame? No, it's not going to be accepted. Because you give for yourself a perfect substitute. So he's picking up on that idea. You hand yourself over as a living sacrifice. You need to be acceptable. Well, our acceptance comes in Christ, of course. But it demands then a life that says, okay, God, you're first. Jesus, you're first. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow. And what you say is what I'm going to do. Now, how are you going to do that if you don't know God's Word? There are a lot of people in this room who don't know God's Word yet. There are a lot of people in this room who are resistant to this idea. No, intellectually, they say that, 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 that's right. But practically, they're resistant. A living sacrifice. So, wokeness says, no, God. No, well, the way we know things is from what's inside my experience. No, no ethics. I can do whatever I want. In other words, social justice, critical race theory, says, I'm in charge, God, and get the hell out of the way. Isn't that what critical race theory says? Yeah, that's what it says. That doesn't belong in the church. What belongs in the church is a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice that says, you know, the right thing is to serve God. A lot of time's gone because we could show connection and maybe we'll do that next week, in verse 2, back with chapter 1. As we talk about a transformed mind. 
So don't be conformed to this world. Let me just throw this out there. If you're not reading your Bible and you're not reading Christian literature, your Bible comes first, you will be conformed to this world because what we take in shapes us. If you're taking in your social media, you're taking in your phone, your games, if you're not putting your mind to use, you will be shaped by forces you don't even see. I offer you a challenge. I read a, I read a book this morning at, uh, oh, I don't know, 2.30. An, an old friend, he's a dead friend, not, not technically my friend. I never met him once in my life. But he's an old friend because I love his works, and it's James Montgomery Boyce. He died in 2000, at the age of 60, having served 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 30 years. He was the 10th pastor with the last name starting with B, all of whom served over 30 years. And he wrote a lot of stuff. And he offered the 10th Presbyterian congregation a challenge. He said, for every secular book you read, read one Christian book. Here's my challenge. Read one Christian book a month. If you need to know what's good, I'll tell you. And remember, I'm always right. We're going to be conformed either to this world by what we put into us or we're going to be transformed out of the way this world thinks by what God puts into us. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for your incredible, undescribable, magnificent, all-pervasive grace whereby in Christ you have accepted sinners like us. If we each had to open up our mind and everybody could see what we did and what we thought, for the past 10 years, we would be so embarrassed that you know it all. And in Christ, we've been accepted. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that whereas, like Adam, we didn't give you glory, and you took our illogical minds, and in Christ, you've transformed them to make them logical to want to serve you. Now, help us to give a new effort, give us new desire to say, okay, yeah, God's been merciful. My body belongs to him. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.